Have the Conversation Podcast. Have the Conversation Podcast. Have the Conversation Podcast. The Have the Conversation Podcast. Have the Conversation Podcast. Real people, real conversations. I am pumped to be part of Have the Conversation. If you were to look up courage in the dictionary, our guest photo might accompany it. With a true-to-life story so powerful and purposeful, it's being made into a movie. Joining us is Christine Handy, and she's proven that with the right support, faith, and self-esteem, you can make it through any bad news. From battling an eating disorder at a young age, a career in modeling, to a misdiagnosis from a bully doctor and a life-changing diagnosis after that, Christine's story and perspective had us leaned into our mics during our conversation. We do discuss some tough topics in this episode, from the eating disorders, as we mentioned earlier, to cancer, to suicidal ideations. We always want to let you know up front what to expect before you continue with an episode. So if these are areas of concern in your life, we want you to know that you're not alone and that there are options available out there. We have some great resources on our site at htcpod.com. You can visit our website for information surrounding this episode and all our other episodes right now. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to be included in the latest happenings, giveaways, and discounts we've secured just for the HTC community. How's your sleep lately? As a trainer, the subject of sleep is often a main topic of discussion. Nobody sleeps perfectly every night, but I have to tell you, I've never slept better than I have since I've discovered the Chili Pad. Chili Pad is a mattress pad that uses cooling technology to keep your bed at exactly the temperature you want all night long. You can set it as low as 55 degrees, like my furnace of a fiance does, or take it all the way up to 95 if you have no problem staying cold on your own. Our bodies need a dark and cool atmosphere to get the most out of our sleep. And the Chili Pad has been one of my favorite sleep hacks to do just that. Go to ChiliPad.com to learn more about the Chili Pad and its upgrade, the Uller. That's C-H-I-L-I-P-A-D.com. They even offer a new Chili weighted blanket to keep you calm and cool all night long. If you like what you see, use the code HAVETHECONVO for a special discount at checkout. That's all one word, HAVETHECONVO, for discounts off your new Chili Pad sleep tight. So I want to know, first of all, did you have your walk today? <laughs> I did. Um, yes, I did. I worked on the treadmill, but I did go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah. Did, any insights, any downloads today on your walk? Um, I listened to actually one of the interviews that I did about a week and a half ago. You know, when I first started to become a speaker and I first started to get interviewed a lot um, about three years ago, well, I became a speaker five years ago, but I, my story really became much more popular about three years ago. And I really didn't listen to any of the interviews for a long time. I just, I, I knew I'd done my job and I just moved on. And now I, I listen to them and because I think it helps me maybe just work out a little kinks. Like refine it a little bit. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Look at the kitty. <laughs> oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he's my secretary. He'll be here all day. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I, I lived in the perfectionist world for a long time. I was a model for, well, I'm still a model for 40 years. I don't do perfection anymore. So I'm not, I'm not listening to my podcasts or my interviews or anything to be more better, different. I'm just listening to it and whatever takeaway I get from it. And listen, I, I preach to myself, like literally I'll, I'll listen to my own interviews and go, whatever she said, you know, <laughs> because I, I, I speak what I preach and I preach what I say because I believe it. And so sometimes I have to remind myself of it. Listen, I read my own book over and over and over again. When I feel less courage in my life, I pick up my book and I look at all the things that I've accomplished. I don't mean my book. I'm talking about gone through cancer, gone through a bully doctor that destroyed my arm, those things, then I I get a little bit more courage. So yeah, I was finishing it yesterday on my uh, treadmill walk, actually. And I I felt you like beside me, I was like, I've got to get through this, I can do it. Your story was absolutely incredible. And I enjoyed it. um, You know, from from cover to cover, I really did. It was fantastic. Well, interestingly enough, that's just what happened until 2014. There has been so much that has happened after that. So it's, it's actually crazy, but I, I wrote a sequel and I'm actually getting my master's degree at Harvard right now. So I'm kind of refining the sequel 
because I'm, I'm, I'm now trained to be a writer versus when I wrote that book, I wasn't technically trained. And so my sequel is probably going to come out in about a year. So. Oh, well, I'll, I'll be getting it. Yeah. <laughs> I really dug it. I really dug it. You can't tell me there's more health hardships in your sequel than you've already had. Girl, let, really? me, just, let me share this. Let me share this. So in 2020, March of 2020, when the whole world had stopped over COVID, I felt an, a little itch in my left breast cavity. And now I had implants. So I had mastectomies in 2012. I had another mastectomy in 2016 to take the other side off, just preventative. And so I liked my chest, meaning I, I would have preferred to keep my own, but that wasn't an option. So I had implants and I liked the implants. And so, and I live in Miami, like the, the implants didn't move and I was good with that. And, and so in March of 2020, I feel kind of an itch in my left chest. And I'm like, you know, I've had so many reconstructions on that side. I'm sure it's fine. And so I just go back to my computer and about two hours later, the itch became like a massive amount of bees. And I, and I went into my, and went into my closet and I lifted up my shirt and my entire left breast was a bright red, looked like a red, you know, those red delicious apples. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking. Yeah. Only that breast. And so I texted a picture to my surgeon and to my oncologist, and they both immediately called me within like 30 seconds. And they said, get to the emergency room. Now, this is March of 2020 when nobody was going to the emergency room. Nobody. They weren't even, they wouldn't even let you get close to the emergency room. Right. So I pull up, I drive myself, I pull up to the emergency room and there's a person in a hazmat suit outside of the emergency room. And she was like, wait, can you get my arms? Like, what are you doing here? And I go, well, my doctor told me to come. <laughs> so yeah. let me in. He's in there. He was in there waiting for me. So I ended up spending four days in the hospital on the seventh floor where there was three other patients. There was nobody in the hospital other than COVID patients. And there was one floor where they had four patients. And it was really confusing during that time because I thought, well, should I be worried that I'm going to get COVID in here? And what's going on with this breast thing? And I mean, I've already been through breast cancer. Like what could possibly be happening now? And they let me go with a pick line in my arm. I don't know if you know what that is. I I've had one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the worst. I've had three now. Oh my like gosh. I, it, they're the worst. And so I had a pick line for two weeks. Then my doctors, I had a checkup. They said I was fine. So now fast forward to the end of April, 2020, still nobody's going to the hospital. Nobody wants to get near the hospital. And the same thing happened. I go for my walk. I come back. I sit at my desk and I'm working and I sit, still have this itch. And I'm, I'm like, there's no way that this is happening again. Sure enough, I go in my closet. Same thing happened. But this time the redness was going up my chest. Like you could see it going up my chest. Go to the emergency room. They keep me for five days. They send me home with antibiotics. They say, I'm fine. I believe them. Like there's no redness on my breast. There's no swelling. There's no pain. So I believe them. Six weeks later, I'm flying home from going to see my son because I hadn't seen him since COVID started and I'm getting off a plane into Miami and I don't feel good. And I'm, I'm in the Uber and I'm not looking at my phone, which is really unlike me because I'm usually like, I'm usually like trying to get emails done. And, and so I'm kind of like, my head's kind of laying on the, the chair in the Uber and I get home and I'm trying to take off my shirt and trying to get in the shower because whenever I get off an airplane, I'm, I feel so dirty. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that I just get my first place to go is the shower. So I'm, I'm trying to walk to the shower, but I know I feel really bad. And I just chalk it up to it. It was just a long day of travel. And by the time I got to my shower, I'm pulling my shirt and my shirt is sticking to my body. And I get the shirt off and there is a hole in my breast and pus, green pus is oozing out of my chest. Oh my God. And I'm like, so I, I text a picture to my oncologist and my surgeon and my oncologist FaceTimes me because she, she wants to now, now I, I realize this later, she wants to see what I look like. Because when you have a, when you're, when you have an infection and it's eaten away your skin through your body, there's a real problem. Right. So I get to the emergency room and I had a MRSA infection because if you have a staph infection and the antibiotics and everything they're trying to do doesn't work it becomes a worse infection. So mine turned into a MRSA infection, which is deadly. And so within five hours, I, my breast cavity was excavated. No more implants, no more 
opportunity for an implant because now I've lost so much skin from the MRSA infection that now I have a concave chest. So yes, since my book, that happened. <laughs> oh. oh my God. Catch a break. <laughs> like, I mean, I know. And I'm still, I'm still standing. I'm still smiling. I'm still preaching. I'm still serving because we got to take all that pain. We got to take all that post-traumatic wisdom and we got to give it out like mm -hmm. confetti, like candy, like Halloween. We have to help other people because there are so many times during my journey that when I felt hopeless, I don't want other people to feel hopeless. I want to give them, I want to equip them with, with the tools that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. That's a gift. It is. It really is. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't get there. A lot of people get stuck in the why me and I can't believe this is happening, especially over and over again. Yeah. Like, how do you keep picking yourself back up after all these things keep happening to you? Well, I think for me, I had such a low self-esteem for most of my life for 40 years. And it was just this constant comparison to society. I mean, I was, I was a model. I worked yeah. in Europe. I was a successful model. And the constant cutting me down and I'm not saying the modeling industry isn't wonderful. It is. I still am in that industry, but it was a difficult industry, especially when you start at a very young age to figure out who you are on the, on the inside, because you're so focused on the outside. And so when I was faced with these illness and chronic pain and, and suffering, physical suffering and emotional suffering, I had to really look inside and do a lot of introspection. And I realized my self-esteem was built on sand. I realized that my self-esteem needed a lot of work. And so during 15 months of chemotherapy, instead of wallowing in my sorrow, which by the way, I did in the beginning, instead of wallowing and staying in that why me space, I decided to figure out who I was. And I decided to ask the questions, why not me? What can I do with this pain? How can I help other people with all the suffering? And that turned into writing my book, which then turned into becoming a speaker, which then turned into doing what I do now. And I almost feel like the modeling part, being in front of a camera for so long was the platform to do what Preparing I do now. You. Yeah. Preparing me, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I, I rebuilt myself on faith. I rebuilt myself on unstoppable ground, meaning my self-esteem is unshatterable because my measure is with God. Mm -hmm. My measure isn't likes. My measure isn't followers. My measure isn't accolades from society. My measure isn't, a bigger, better modeling job. My measure isn't a bigger, better interview. Those things are nice, right? I'm walking in New York Fashion Week. That's a nice, that's a nice thing. But I don't get my worth from that, right? Did it take the illness for you to get there? So it has not always been that way? Oh, no, no, no. I'm like a different person. I was very much wrapped up into materialism. I was very much wrapped up into false idols. Make no mistake about it. I loved who I was but I'm a different person. I love who I am now. And I went from being very self-involved and self-serving, soothing, I mean, self-serving, even though I was so insecure to being, you know, very selfless and trying to serve other people. And now I'm so secure in who I am. And it's much easier to give out when you're very secure with who you are. And I don't want people to, to think that it's easy Doing the self-care and the self-love work, work is very hard. It takes a lot of practice. It's like eliminating all the negativity in your life, which is hard because you have to eliminate people. You have to eliminate habits. You have to eliminate things that you're used to watching, voices you're listening to hearing, right? But if you take the time to do that and you rebuild on, you know, what's inside, you know, what really makes you tick, like real, what really keeps you up at night, right? Those types of things. And you figure that out and you do the introspective work to do that, you know, you can really change your life and feel so much more joy. I live in chronic pain and I was very happy in my previous life. Right. But I feel joy now. And that comes from helping other people. Well, I just think when you are insecure and you don't have much self-worth, you can't help but be self-serving because you're working from an, an emptiness. Like there's no room for helping right. other people. So it's almost like the confidence almost has to come first before right. you can, you know, be more selfless. When you realize you were dependent on your appearance for so long, because I think I heard you were modeling since you were 11. Yes. That's, mm -hmm. that's your whole life. Right. Yeah. When that kind of got ripped away from you, 
can you walk us through like what you just said, that whole experience yeah. of realizing like I need to focus on other things to help my self-esteem? Yeah. I mean, when I was, when it was stripped away from me and I was really dependent on external things, not just external people, external accolades. And of course my physical dependency on my, what I look like when that was stripped away from me, I felt total despair. There were, there were low, I have never felt so low in my life or I just didn't even want to live. And because I didn't know anything else, I was really caught up in the materialism. Like you said, when we feel empty inside, we fill it with something. Some people fill it with alcohol. Some people fill it with drugs. I was, I was filling it with friends. I was filling it with um, false idols. I was filling it with bags, right? Like going shopping, but it wasn't working. And so when I was faced with cancer, after I just had a major illness before that, I felt such despair. I didn't know how to move on. And I had a group of women in Dallas who showed, sorry, who showed up for me. And when they started to show up for me and they said to, to me, your value isn't about what you look like. We love you for who you are inside. And I thought they're bullshitting me. There's no way. They're just saying that because I'm sick. They're just trying to be nice to me. And it was this pride and this ego that I had within myself. Like, I'm not worthy. They're not going to keep showing up for me. I'm going to go through 15 months of cam cam chemo and cancer. They're going to forsake me. And I don't even know if I'm going to get through it. And I was focused on the outcome, right? I was focused on whether I was going to get through it. And when I was able to let go of the pride and able to let go of the ego and say to them and myself, I need help. I need you guys to show up. And, you know, in this world, I think we're programmed as women to be so independent and to take care of ourselves. And it's kind of a, a sign of weakness not to do that. It's actually not true. It's a sign of, it's a sign of courage to ask for help. And so when I started to ask for help and people showed up for me and they kept showing up for me, that nurtured my self-esteem. So they were building the foundation. They were like a courage net for me. And then once that net was secure, they would say to me, once you're, once you're done with chemo and once you're off on your own, you now, you are now on solid ground. And I, and I believed that and I believed in myself. And so there's tons of quiet moments when you're going through chemotherapy or when you're waiting for surgery. I mean, there are many days I was just laying on my bathroom floor. I didn't get up for hours because I was so ill. And it was during those times where I was like, okay, who are you? Okay, what do you want to do with your life moving forward? If I get through this, what do I want to do? And how do I want to walk through this to show the people in my life? Like, do I want to show my kids fear? Do I want to show my kids courage? It's our reaction to trauma that really matters. And so when people show up for you and they have, they're like the courage net, and then you start to feel good about yourself and you start to rebuild from the inside out, then your life can really shift. Now, I know a lot of people who didn't do that. I got stuck in that paralysis of pain. You know, if you're in chronic pain or if you are depleted from chronic illness and, and getting punched around in this world, which by the way, we all do on some level, right? It doesn't have to be cancer diagnosis. We all get pushed around. And so if you're not on solid ground, meaning you have a solid self-esteem and your life is built on something that can't be taken away, bags can be taken away, money can be taken away, friends can be take away, taken away. Your beauty can be taken away and we're all going to age, right? Mm. So if we're not focused so much on that and we focus on other things, for me, it's faith. I, I think it's too shaky. I don't think you can build your life on that. I tried. It didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I recently heard that both like fear and faith have the same heartbeat, but it's the lens in which you look out, you know, and, and that's how you attack things. And I thought it was just so beautiful. And then I, I had heard that right after I had read Walk Beside Me, and I was like, well, okay. <laughs> this makes a whole lot of sense right now. Message received. <laughs> Message received. Definitely, definitely. And, and I love that. And as your perspective was shifting, and so what was your, um, and if this is too personal, don't, don't feel like you need to answer. Were you raised faith-based or was this like spiritually, how did you start to lean into that? So I was raised Catholic and I kind of, um, I kind of walked away from Catholicism when I was in college. It didn't mean I walked away from God, but I didn't put a lot of time and effort into it. And it's interesting when I was right, my, when I had young kids and my friends, I had really started these strong friendships in Dallas. 
my friends would say, Hey, can you go to Bible study with me on Wednesday? And I was like, no, I've got a yoga class. And it was because the yoga was more important than the faith. And I was building my life on that. And those are all choices, right? I chose, I chose to ignore that for a long time. It doesn't mean that I didn't have God in my heart and believe in that. I did, but I wasn't pouring into it. I wasn't meditating on that. I was meditating on other things, which by the way, were taken away from me. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I didn't even think of that aspect of it. Yeah. Like my, you read my book, like think about my arm, like yoga yeah. was an idol for me. Now I can't even do yoga. You know, materialism, yeah. shopping was an idol for me. I can hardly carry a bag. I usually carry the ones that, you know, go around your chest. So it's I don't a have satchel. to. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Can you go into that part of your story about what happened with your arm and the doctor sure. and everything for all yeah. listeners? So I think, let me start off with this. I think when you're insecure, you listen to other voices. You listen to negativity in your own mind, but you also listen to outside voices that maybe aren't really cheering you on. And so when I had a torn ligament in my right wrist, I went to see a doctor in Dallas who happened to be a Stanford grad, who happened to be at the best clinic, right? And, and so I trusted him. So he performed the surgery in my right wrist. And six weeks later, the cast came off. And the day after the cast came off, my arm literally ballooned. Like I woke up the next morning, which is a Sunday, and my arm looked like my thigh bone. It was grotesquely swollen. The pain was indescribable. And so I called the doctor that Sunday, which by the way, I was ashamed to do because I thought, oh, I'm putting him out. It's Sunday. I don't want to bother him. But I got up enough courage to call him and he told me that I overiced it. Well, because I don't have a medical degree, I believed him. And the other thing about intense pain, which I now know, is when you're intense pain, you cling to people of authority and you don't remember things that are unimportant. So everything that he said to me was like Bible. Okay, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do because the pain was so intense. So a couple of days later, I said to my husband, will you please call the doctor? The pain is still horrific. I, I can't even get out of bed. I stopped eating and drinking anything. So I didn't have to go to the restroom. I carried my arm on my chest like a baby. And so I finally got in to see my doctor. And he said, you have this condition called RSD. He did not take a blood test, which again, I didn't notice. He did not do an x-ray. And he said, you have this connection in your brain where your brain is telling your limb, which is in this case was my right arm, that there's pain and swelling, but it's a misfire. It's really conditioned in your head. And I thought, okay. So I Googled it, right? And I figured out, okay, I've got six months to get any movement in my right wrist. Because RSD, what it can do, if you have RSD, is it limits the motion in whatever limit is. For instance, it was my right arm. So he then sends me to a pain management doctor who concurs with his diagnosis. So now I have two doctors who said I have this condition called RSD. So I believe them. So for several months, I go to physical therapy that he, he gave, you know, prescribed for me at Parkland Hospital. So he wanted to get me away from his office. He didn't want me to do physical therapy in his office. Now, again, looking back, I have a greater view of what was going on, but I didn't realize it at the time. So he sends me far away from his office. I do physical therapy four or five days a week, every week, because I'm trying my best to get some movement in my right wrist before it locks up. Months later, I have other, I have people in my life going, you got to get a second opinion. Things are getting worse, not better. And I was like, no, he's a Stanford grad. He's the guy, you know, and he, and this other doctor said the same thing. I'm good. I'm good. Even though I wasn't good. My hair was thinning. I was losing weight. There were other signs that were going on. And so I was just so focused on getting some movement in my wrist that that's, that's all I was meditating on. And so ultimately I'm walking in the, walking in the neighborhood, doing my daily walk. And one of the parks and recreation guys comes over to me and he goes, Hey, and like, he knew me. And I said, hi. And he said, you have a new cast on today. And I looked at him, I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, gosh, you've had so many casts over the last several months. You know, I see you walking all the time. And I looked out at my arm. And at that point I had like 13 or 14 casts. What? And I immediately said to myself, you got to have a second opinion. And so I called a friend and she got me into a doctor. And the next day 
I was in emergency surgery to cut out as much infection because I had an infection the entire seven months that was slowly eating away my arm. Every, every bone in my wrist was broken. I had no cartilage left. And that doctor bullied me. He dismissed me. He called me a hysterical, hysterical housewife. One day I sent him a picture of this piece of metal that popped out of one of the openings from the original surgery. And he told me that I made that picture up. Now, I didn't even tell my husband that he had said that because I felt such shame. When we are bullied, we feel shame and we feel paralyzed. I had no self-esteem. That man was making myself seem worse and I was believing him because I didn't have enough confidence in myself. Ultimately that on top of breast cancer fueled me to change my life, fueled me to figure out, wait, something's not right. Like I'm, I'm putting my value in things that are sinking. I need to change this. And so it was those extreme situations that really propelled me to change and shift in my life. And now I live in chronic pain, unfortunately, and I have a fused arm, which means I don't have a wrist. So I'm handicapped, I'm in chronic pain, and I, I just deal with it. Did you have any communication with that doctor after you found out what was actually going on? Because that's absurd. It's, it's, it's disgusting. What he did to me was disgusting. We actually sued him because I, I needed, I wanted him to not to do it to somebody else. Right. And when we went into mediation, he, he was on, he was sitting in a different room, but when I got up to go to the bathroom and by the way, when I was suing him, I was going through chemotherapy. So I had no hair. I was still in a cast in my arm. I was still in a cast. I had no hair, I had no eyelashes. And so I walked by him and he smiled and laughed at me. Oh. <gasps> I just got chills. Like at the lowest point in my life, the guy laughed at me and I was like, I, you know, it took me a while to forgive him, but I did forgive him. And here's why it was too much weight that I was carrying. I was giving him too much power in my life. I had to, I had to take all the power that he had taken and give it and taken from me. And I was like, I can't let you have another thought in my head. So I don't even think about him. Wow. Never. I mean, People ask me about it all the time because it's such a sad story. And it's funny because people read my book and they're like, I kind of get the breast cancer, but the arm, like, they just want to kill that <laughs> You do, you get hung up on the arm. You get real hung up on the arm. I was mad. I was mad when I was reading it. Well, and that's the other thing about anger. Like we, I have righteous anger. You have righteous anger. But if we stay in that anger, that's a choice. It becomes us, yeah. We can't stay in that anger. Right. Do you have trouble trusting doctors after that experience? So I did. I was diagnosed with cancer. I had gone up to New York City to have my arm fused. Obviously, I had to get a new doctor. And I'm in a hotel room in New York City, about to be about to go see a doctor who's just fused my arm. I have my six-week post-arm fusion checkup. So I'm in a cast from my fingertips to my shoulder, right? You can't even brush your hair when you have a cast like that. You can't do anything. It's It's so... It's so it's paralysis in and of itself. You're so dependent on other people just for the simplest basic things. I couldn't even get dressed without help. So I'm in the shower. And, and for the months that I had a cast on in Dallas, I had just poured liquid soap over my shoulder and just let it wash down my body. That's how I wash my body because I have this big cast and it's outside of the shower, right? So I'm in New York City and I've got this big cast and I'm like reaching out of the shower and I look in the shower and I'm at a hotel and there's no liquid soap. And so I'm exhausted, like, what am I going to do now? So I take this bar of soap and I'm like, I'll try to, I'll try to wash as much as I can. And I feel a lump in my breast. And I just think there's no way, there's no way of breast cancer. I have no family history of breast cancer. There's no, I'm 41. I'm a self-proclaimed athlete. I I'm allergic to sugar. I'm healthy. Other than this arm deal, I'm healthy. Sure enough, five days later, I was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. So yeah, things got pretty crazy quickly. And interestingly enough, we had to postpone chemo for a month. So I go meet an oncologist, right? Here's the trust with the doctor. And I, and I, before I even walk into his office, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not, I'm not doing what he says. I don't, I'm not going to trust him. You know, doctors are liars. And that was a false idol for me. 
And I walk into his office and he goes, oh, so you're the girl with the arm. He completely like has compassion. You read, he knew your story. He knew my story. He made me feel like a person. And so I was, I was, I bought in right then. You know, if we show people compassion and empathy, it changes the whole dynamic. If we don't hear people, if we don't listen to each other, if we don't acknowledge each other, our self-esteem is destroyed just by that, just by those things. Like we have to show up for each other. It's a privilege. But I feel like in this world, we, we get, we, a lot of us feel put out by helping other people. Friends, it's a privilege. Like every single day we have an opportunity to help other people. Who wouldn't sign up for that? I wish we had more people that thought that way. <laughs> what it, I mean, it is a, it's a choice for sure. But, but here's the thing that comes back to you. You get joy. So in essence, it's a, it's a two-way street. You're helping other people and by them receiving it and by them changing or feeling inspired, they're giving you courage too to do more. How on the nose was um, your character Willow to your life? Was it pretty accurate? Was the story in tandem for most of the part? Yeah, so it's really a fictional depiction of my life. We did change the names and things like that just to protect some people. Um, my book is actually being made into a film called Willow, the feature film. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, that's so I am cool. too. I am too. They, 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 they market it as kind of a, a cross between the movie Wild and Steel Magnolias. Like, we need a good chick flick, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is gonna, this is gonna be it. I just know it. And so, the most beautiful thing about the screenplay is that it really mirrors my book. A lot of times, books are the adaptation of books to film don't quite mirror the book. They're similar, but they don't really mirror it. This, the adaptation, the screenplay, really mirrors my book. So it's on the big screen. It's gonna look very much like the book. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. So the character Willow, and now clearly you, she was alone a lot of the time through all of these health issues. Yeah. Do you feel like there was a purpose for that in your life that you had to go through a lot of this alone? Yeah, because I was really codependent. And I really thought that other people, like my husband, he should be taking care of me. And when I was going through that, obviously very traumatic time, and there was a lot of alone time, I had to really realize that, no, I was the captain of my ship. I was in charge of my destiny. I didn't have to rely on other people. Of course, I needed help. And we all need help. And I'm a big preacher about that. We need to, even the simplest things can help other people. A text, a call, FaceTime, you know, dropping something small off. It doesn't have to be financially a burden for you. But I needed to realize that I was good enough alone. I was good enough on my own. And subsequently I, I am, I'm, I'm, I've been, I'm going through a divorce and, and I'm okay. Like I'm okay with who I am. In fact, I love who I am and I'm okay with the place I am in, but years ago, I would have never felt comfortable being alone. So I think it, there's always purpose in pain. Yeah, we just have yeah. to choose to see it. Yeah. Your girlfriends or your angels were, were a big, um, a big, big part of your recovery, I would say, and, and the people that really helped you get through and I know for me in my life, I had a very hard time having um, female relationships for a very long time. And now that I have a group of like women that I can count on, I know that it's like life-changing for me. Can you speak a little bit about them and what they've meant to your life? Well, I think if I didn't have those women show up for me, I would never have built that confidence in myself. So sometimes, sometimes we have to have somebody start it. And it can have that chain, you know, that overall effect, that kind of wave effect on us but somebody has to start it. And if you can't start it yourself, for me, I couldn't start it myself. I was so used to feeling bad about myself, I was stuck. And so when they started to show up for me, thankfully I'd picked good friends and I guess I was a good friend or they wouldn't have hung around. And again, I mean, we, and I used to say to them, I said, well, this is another illness. I mean, they had taken me to physical therapy for months already. So it was now, this is the, was the third illness. And I, I said, well, are you gonna, are you gonna still help me? And they said, it's okay. All the seasons of our life aren't happy. And just because you've had three kind of bad ones doesn't mean we're going to leave you. There's going to be many, many seasons of flourishing in your life. And we're going to be there for that too. And so that kind of confidence that they had in me built up my confidence. And so, yes, there was a lot of alone time and there was a lot of time for introspection, but 
these women, they, they took charge of my life and they taught me what to do. And they taught me how to lead for myself by modeling that for me. And so right now, if I can model for other people, independence and strength and courage through a lot of pain, then maybe that gives somebody courage to do it themselves. Right. That's beautiful. Thank you. I want to go back to the movie. I think that's so cool. <laughs> is it surreal? What is it like to have a movie made about your own life? You know, it's, it is surreal. And I think that the only way that I feel about it is it has nothing to do with my name. It, it almost doesn't have anything to do with my story, but there needs to be a story about this. There needs to be a story about women championing each other. There needs to be a story about breast cancer because it's everywhere, unfortunately. There needs to be a, a story of hope and there needs to be a good chick flick. And so if, it, if it's my story, I'm very grateful for that but I'm not caught up in all the other stuff about it. I have no pride in it. I have no ego in it. It's not like I, I look at myself and go, oh, you know what? Good job. Did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, don't, yeah. I, don't get, I don't get caught up in that because again, I don't get caught up in things that can be taken away. Like what if it wasn't successful? Would I feel bad about myself? No, because my measure is with God. It's not with a film. It's not with my success of my book. It's not with the success of my speaking my measure is different than it used to be. But do you have any like roles or creative license in the making of it? Oh, well, so I had control over the script. So I had the first right of refu refusal. And so when the, when the screenplay writer, his name is Ziad Hamza, he's incredible. He's an Oscar award-winning screenplay writer and director. When he wrote the screenplay, we both had entertainment lawyers work with us. And I said, I just wanna, I wanna have the last right of refusal for the script. So even when it's being made into a film, I, if they tweak the script, I can come in there and go, no, I don't like that. Or I don't like this. It has to be, you know, whatever. And so that part, I really love. I kind of have control over that, but I have no control over who plays me. I have no control over the care, you know, the, the casting. I'll be on set. It takes about 30 days to shoot a film. So I'll be on set the whole time. Um, and they- That's it? 30 yeah. days? Yeah. Holy all cow. Films. All films. It's a system. <laughs> it's a system. Wow. Um, and they also gave me two walk-on parts so I can pick two friends to have a walk-on. Oh, so cool. We'll be there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I, I feel like we're going to walk the red carpet. I really do feel like this film is going to be very successful because I think we need it. Like I said, yeah. I think it's important. Yeah, we will definitely see it for sure. Yeah. There is a part in the book, uh, well, there's two parts really that, that stood out for me as like, okay, I, I really needed to hear that. One was the, the part at the psychiatrist's office or with your sister or Willow's sister. I don't, I don't know. I, I, my sister, my sister, that happened. I just want to make sure um, where, where you were contemplating suicide and you told her that you just did not want to live anymore and, and that whole dialogue, how impactful was that for you? And do you still find yourself in moments when I, when of distress thinking about that? I think it was a good teaching moment for me because I really felt that kind of despair. I felt that low. And when you feel that despair, you don't make good choices. And you really do in those moments have to re rely on people that really love you to help you through those moments. And it's not shameful to feel that way. In fact, it's, it's, it's powerful to be able to share that. You know, if we have enough courage to say, this is how I felt, then think about all those people that contemplate suicide in, 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 and they're alone in their thoughts right. and they can see a success story. And so my sister, what she said was important for me because I needed to hear that. And then I had another friend expand on that. She sat me down and she said, you know, this can be a generational burden this can turn into multi-generational things happening and it, it affects, of course, other people. And, and I just, you just get so caught up in the, your own pain. I wasn't thinking about the pain of other people. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, it, my brain wasn't functioning in the right way. And so my sister saying that, my friend saying that, that all those things helped me overcome that despair. And interestingly enough, my son was supposed to come home. He was, my older son was in boarding school and he was supposed to come home from boarding school the first weekend that I, after I was diagnosed and he got in trouble at school. And then he got in trouble the next weekend. And then he got in trouble a third weekend. 
So by the time, and I was using that opportunity for him to come home, to love on him and to say, I love you, but I was going to take my life. And so by the time he actually came home, which was postponed by three weeks, I was all in to save my life. So I needed that postponement. And that was God. That was God. Yeah, that's thing. a God thing. Yeah. That's God. That, that was God. God's mercies and God's grace. Thankfully, right? I wouldn't be here telling you about my story. Yeah. The, the second thing for me that really hit home was when um, with the Halloween decorations. And obviously we're like knee deep in that, um, yeah. you know, season <laughs> yeah. right now and, and what your friends did and how they came to you and said, you know, what you're surrounded by is not life-giving. You know, you're looking, you're surrounded by death, even if you're doing it, not think like, you know, unconsciously right. having it surrounding you. And I just thought that that was such a neat way that they showed up for you. And have you continued that? So I even had a really cool scar. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell everybody who's listening. So when my, I was diagnosed with cancer on October 1st, my first chemo was October 31st, Halloween. And when my friends would come over, they'd look around my house and there was skulls and goblins and, and things that didn't represent life. Even my dog bowl had some skulls and crossbones. And my friend said, we can't have that in your house. We have to bring in plants. We have to bring in life, you know, things that you can see that are life that represent life. And so I I never even thought about that. And so I went through, I was in my closet one day during that time. And I saw this beautiful scarf that I had that had skull and crossbones on it. And I gave it to a friend. I was like, I can't even have the scarf anymore (laughs) because I so believe in that. And it's true. Like if you look around in your life and you, you see things that represent death, you watch the news all the time, man, you're going to feel very fearful. It's what we listen to. It's what we see. It's who we surround ourselves with. I would. I'm very careful about who I follow on social media because I don't want that negativity. I don't want that noise, right? I want, I want to see things that are hopeful and life-giving. Yeah. That's so intuitive that they even thought that about Halloween decorations. Cause I, yeah. you know, I've, I've thought about how you can absorb the things you listen to and the things you see, but even in terms of decorations, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even taken it that far, but at that point in your life, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I, I never thought about it either. And now I've said it so many times on interviews or in my book that people now use that as their own, you know, kind of way. I rearranged. (laughs) Thank you. Only pumpkins this Halloween, nothing else. Pumpkins and mums and beauty. And yeah, it is all those things. And you still get the, the, the funness and and the joy that the, this time of year brings. It's just in a different way. And, and I had never thought of it. Um, in that context either. I thought it was like, it was a real aha moment. (laughs) That makes me so happy. Yeah. Yeah. It was really great. I was listening to another podcast you were on earlier and you mentioned that you had, I mean, as if all these illnesses weren't enough, you also battled with an eating disorder from a young age. I think you said you were 13. Yeah. That's definitely a subject I've had one in my life. I was 13 when I developed it as well. I know a lot of people in my life, a lot of our listeners struggle with the same kind of problems. Um, You mentioned when you were in college that you finally decided you were going to open up to your parents and tell them you needed help. What brought you to that moment where you wanted to do that? My eating disorder was controlling me. I wasn't able to control it anymore. And I got to that place where I, again, I had to let go of my pride and my ego, like, oh, I got this. Mm -hmm. And I came home from college and I said to my parents, I don't got this anymore. It's controlling me. I need help. And that was really difficult for me to say to them. It was really difficult for me to admit it, but it was also really difficult for me to admit it to my family. And so I stayed in the hospital for a month and that really, really helped me. You know, it was relearning how to eat. I was in the hospital with a psychologist teaching me about self-esteem and and my value. And, and that really changed the trajectory of my eating disorder. But I don't know if I could have, for me, I don't know that I could have gotten away from that pattern, those patterns and that behavior without like a full stop, like being in the hospital that, that changed my trajectory. And then when you had a healthier mindset around eating, was it harder to be in the modeling industry after that? Or did, did it change the it way was. you thought about it? Yeah, it, it was harder. But I kind of took my knowledge, funny, I kind of took my knowledge back then to the other models. And I kind of share, you know, with what I had gone through. It's funny, I haven't really thought about that in a long time. And so I was kind of helping people back then. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, maybe I was the one that had to go through it because maybe I was the one that was going to be able to share the story. Right. Yeah. You never know. You're modeling again now, right? Yeah, I'm actually, yes, I have a modeling agency and I'm modeling in New York fashion week in February. Oh my God. Congratulations. That's so cool. I, I mean, it's so cool. It's so cool. I'm, Do you love it just as much or more now? I think I love it more because I'm, you know, that what I'm, what the brands are putting me in are very fitted clothing. So you're going to see the concave chest. So there's a purpose in my modeling now, which before I loved it, but there was no, there wasn't really such a purpose for it. There's a more meaningful purpose now. So I feel yeah. very lucky. I feel very lucky to represent people with concave chests. Because trust me, when I tell you, I get the messages on social media and I hear the pain and I hear the embarrassment. I hear the shame because they compare themselves to other women in this world, which by the way, is a self-esteem destroyer comparison. And I just think I have to, I have to show this off Mm -hmm. one. This is who I am. This is what I look like. I'm not covering it up. And two, I have the self-confidence to do it, take it or leave it. Right. I don't really care if people don't like it. But if I can represent this demographic of people saying I'm flat and I'm fabulous and I, and I change people's perspective or inspire them to do that as well, again, lucky me. Yeah. Have you noticed going back into the modeling industry with the Me Too and the body positivity movements and all of that, has anything changed dramatically there? Dramatically. Yeah. Dramatically. Dramatically. Just look at, at the advertisements all around you. You know, there's women of different weights and sizes and heights and, and it's more accepting, right? I mean, the only, listen, the only reason I'm walking in New York fashion week is not because of my beauty. It's because I'm a longtime model. I have a story and I have a concave chest. I'm okay with that because I'm representing a demographic of people that need to see that, but come on. I mean, let's, let's be real. So I think it's amazing. I think it's, I was just at fashion week in New York in September and there were people that were modeling that were 80 and 10 and, and, you know, larger and smaller and everything in between. And it was beautiful for me to see that because when I was really at my prime modeling, we, I didn't see any of that. So it's dramatically changed. You've got full different perspectives. That's so cool. I'm a lifer. I've been modeling yeah. for six years. I'm still going strong. You'll be 80 years old on that runway. I see it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be I'll be 80 years old after all these illnesses. I'll outlive, you know, all yeah. my contemporaries. And you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, you know, you have an earlier expiration date. I'm thinking to myself, I don't think so. I think I'm gonna outlive yeah. all of you. <laughs> I love that outlook. I think that's a great perspective to have. Yeah. And I look forward to watching that happen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that's so, so great. Um, did you know how soon into your diagnosis and everything that you walked through, did you know that you wanted to write the book? Pretty quickly, because now this had been my third major illness. And I thought there's got to be a purpose for all this pain. Yeah. And, and so pretty quickly. So I started to take notes during chemotherapy. I started to save letters that I got and I started to save texts. And I just started to have kind of a, a journal of what was going on. So I would remember stuff. Because, you know, when you go through chemotherapy, you don't remember a lot, especially because chemo brain. And so I was trying to really organize my thoughts so that I could write a book after. Yeah. Fast forward to when, when COVID hit and you, the issue with your breast happened again. What was that moment like? Were you just like, here we go again? Or yeah. I've totally got this or what? Because I, I would think that would be very difficult to have to take yourself into another doctor's office after that. Well, I, you know, after chemotherapy, I had a lot of health issues. I lost three teeth. I went through major chemotherapy. I lost three teeth because it destroyed my teeth. I have heart issues from chemo. I have a liver spot from chemo. There's so many things like people look at me and they're like, oh, you're so, you know, you're, you're attractive or whatever. Yeah, you're pretty. Know. And I'm like, my insides aren't as attractive. Right. I mean, that's just, and I'm okay with that. I, I'm not okay with that. I don't want that, but that's the reality. That is my reality. And so when I, when this whole thing happened with my chest, I really did. I, I, I really said to God, I was like, have I not had enough? Right. Like, what are we doing here? And so here's the beautiful thing that came out of it. For many months, I felt really, um, despair is not the word. I didn't feel despair, but I felt, 
I mean, I was really sad. It was like this lingering sadness. And I finally went into my closet and tried on a bunch of clothes. It took me months to do that because half of my wardrobe I couldn't wear anymore. And so I started to take stuff out of my closet. And that was a brave moment for me. And then one morning I woke up a couple months after that. And I said, I've got to make this. I've got to make some prototype of a bathing suit for women because I live in Miami. And so I would go to bathing suit shops looking for something to wear. And there was nothing. And if I bought something that had a, had a pad in it, the minute you get in the water, the pad is inverted because you have no chest and that doesn't work. And so, and I, again, I've had so many messages from social media where people were like, can, if you find a bathing suit, can you let me know? And so one morning I woke up in, you know, after feeling this kind of low level sadness and I went to my medicine cabinet and I took out a, an ACE bandage and I started to wrap it around my chest and I made a prototype of a bathing suit top. And then I called a, a company in Miami that has this couture bathing suit line, which by the way, took courage because for, there were moments where I was like, oh, this is a bad idea. They're not gonna, they don't wanna listen to you. And I stopped that voice. I took it captive and I was like, that's not true. Don't tell yourself those lies. And so I called this bathing suit company and I said, can I meet with you? And, and the woman said, for sure. So I met with the CEO of the company and I brought my ACE bandage and I'd also gone to Michael's and MJ Designs and I bought fabrics and ribbons. And so I brought all this and I said, we can make something for these people. They need it. I need it. They need it more. And she said, sign me up. I'm all in. So she was actually being interviewed the next day from, with Forbes. And she talked all about this collaboration. So there's actually an article in Forbes about it. So we are manufacturing bathing suits for women who have flat or concave chest. So again, I think I, I shout this from the rooftops all the time. You are going to go through pain. There is going to be really despair, unfortunately, in your life. I wish I could not, I wish I could stop it, but there will be. What are you going to do with it? I say that to myself all the time. What are you going to do with this pain? There has to be purpose in it. And I find a way to help other people with it. That helps me. Yeah. Well, speaking of helping other people, I know that you're on the board of a few different nonprofits. Do you mind sharing um, what they are and why you wanted to get behind them? Yeah, so I'm so excited about eBeauty. eBeauty is a, a nonprofit. It's a, um, an organization that a woman in Miami started, I think 12 years ago. And it's a wig exchange program. And so when I was going through treatment, I was able to afford wigs and I had several because that made me feel a little bit nor more normal. And so this is, this is a way that people can give back, can donate their wigs, and we've partnered with L'Oreal who gives us grant money. And we've partnered with the Paul Mitchell salons who they wash and style our wigs. And then we redistrib redistribute those to women who need a wig who cannot afford it. So it's a free service. You just go to our website, ebeauty.com and you pick the color, you pick the style and we'll ship it out to you. Our biggest cost is shipping, um, but we get grant money to, to cover that. And to date, we have redistributed over 60,000 free wigs. That's amazing. 60,000. incredible. Free wigs. I know. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I'm trying to talk about that all the time because there's so often people don't know about this resource and it's free. So, and then the second, um, the second board of directors I'm on is another nonprofit. I have the privilege of speaking in prisons in Florida. And so I spoke at one of the prisons about four years ago and one of the inmates got out of prison and he reached out to me on social media and he said, would you meet with me? And I was like, of course. And so I met with, I met him. It was about a two hour drive and we met at this pizza place. It's a cute story. He comes in with this, he's got a full red like suit on, like a sports coat and all red. And he's got this big black briefcase and he comes in and he was like, I have a whole plan. We're going to change the, state, the, the landscape of recidivism in Palm Beach County. And I was like, okay, I'm all ears. <laughs> so we stayed there for a few hours. And about two years ago, we solidified this organization. We, it became a nonprofit. And we have 12 board members. And we are doing a lot of good work in Palm Beach County. We are changing the, the landscape of recidivism. And so that organization is called People of Purpose. And that's who he and I started this organization. Where did your compassion for inmates come from? Well, when I became a motivational speaker, I, I just took all the opportunities that were put in front of me and I didn't, 
um, I didn't really care who it was in front of. I knew that my story translated into different messages and I knew that I could speak to many different audiences. I, I kind of thought when the state of Florida hired me that I was going to be speaking in women's prisons, mm -hmm. but I've never spoken in a women's prison. I always speak in men's prisons. That's where they put me in. And I give them a lot of hope, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we you know what, wherever God puts me, that's where I go. That's wild, right? You just never know where you're going to end up. I think well, that's so cool. Where do you, where do you feel being led to next? What are your hopes for yourself? Well, I do need some balance in my life. And I've been talking about that a lot lately. I, I pretty much have worked for the last six years nonstop because I felt like I, you know, I needed to get, I needed to help people. I was so, I felt so alone in my journey for so long that I, I thought I can use this to help other people so they don't feel so alone. And so I've been working nonstop and, you know, sometimes people look at my success and go, oh, well, you know, you're just so lucky. And I think that's not luck. That's like 15 hours, a, a lot day, of hours, yeah, seven days a week <laughs> yeah, doing it yeah. myself. Yeah. And, and so now I, I would like to take a step back and I want to watch the film be made. And I want to just take some time. Like tomorrow I'm going on vacation. I haven't been on vacation in five years. Oh, congratulations. Where are you, you going? Girl. I'm going to Laguna beach. But the funny thing is, is like, I'm only taking three days off. <gasps> I know my limits. Christine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's baby steps trying to get yeah, some balance yeah. in my life. I'm, I'm tiptoeing my way in there. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. When you are traveling, how do you um, find time to take care of yourself? What are you doing? Well, I'm always walking. Yes. Mm -hmm. But when I'm walking, I'm, I'm I, like, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm walking, I'm looking at my phone going, okay, I don't know. Is that, is that, <laughs> I do the same thing. I do. Right. And, or I'm listening to stuff, right. That is, you know, cheering me on. And so, um, you know, I travel, I, I live a life of very strong intention. I live a life of very strong purpose and wherever that go, wherever that takes me. So if I'm walking down the street in New York, cause I'm up in New York meeting with brands. I'm talking to people, I'm saying hello to people instead of just walking by them. And so I think from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, there's opportunities to serve and help other people and make them feel not uh, so alone. And I use every opportunity that I can. I mean, I was in New York for Fashion Week and I was on the subway and we're all masked up on the subways and I'm sitting next to people and I'm like starting conversations, you know, how are you doing today? I really want to know how you're doing. Don't just tell me you're fine. How are you really doing? you know, kind of opening up things and, and people, they love it. They love it. They want to be seen. It is funny because we do live in a culture where it is rude if you don't say like, hello, how are you? But literally like it happened on my way to work this morning. You walk past someone, it's, hey, how are you? And, and they, they just keep walking. Like it's not, it's like, good. All right. Me too. Okay. Bye. Right. <laughs> like it's not yeah. genuine, but it's just kind of like a formality. I don't do small talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me neither. Me neither. No I, it's, it's a problem. Like whenever I'm at like a checkout or whatever, no, seriously, people will just pour their whole life onto you. And, <laughs> and I enjoy it. It's, it's happened since I was like very young. People would just tell me things. So it's just wild. Oh, <laughs> knows all the secrets. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to say that. By any well, people trust you. That's a really good compliment. It's nice yeah. to be able to hold space for people and their stories. I mean, that's what this yes thing was was founded on and, and the importance of conversation and learning learning from other people so I can't thank you enough for coming in and talking with us today I've yeah. really been looking forward to this thank you thank yeah. you it's a privilege really thank you so much uh, yeah no we're, we're so happy to have you here D do you have any words of wisdom or hope for people who are going through life-altering challenges right now I feel like the whole podcast is full of them, but yeah. <laughs> it might be redundant, but anything to leave off on? Well, I, you know, when I have dark moments, like we all do, you know, when in relational or, you know, just in disappointments, I remind myself to say to myself, let go and let God. And it's hard. Like we we're driven, right? All three of us. And we want to control a lot of it, but we're, we're not in control. And so yeah, even a little bit. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just true. Mm -hmm. And so giving it to God for me, if, if I'm walking into a moment where I feel bad, I go, okay, God, take over, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That dependency, my that dependency on God for me versus the dependency on the world. It's life-changing. Mm. 
I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much. We can't wait to see the movie. We can't wait to read the next book. And I hope we can give you a hug someday soon because definitely so, yes. so great. Thank you. Yes. We'll always continue the conversation. Our paths will cross again. I'm sure. Can't I wait for so. it. <laughs> Take care, Christine. Thank Thanks, you. Christine. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we invite you to come be a part of the HDC community. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching at have the combo. For information on all of our shows, guests, and more, visit htcpod.com. While you're there, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Talk soon.